Hi, Kindred. How are you doing? Good. I'm Lindsay, and um, if you're new or if I just haven't had the chance to meet you, I would really love um, to introduce myself and get to chat with you a little bit tonight. And so if you can hang around after service, I would really love the opportunity um, to do that. And then for those of you that I do know a little bit better, uh, last week I got to hear a ton of stories about the petty fights that you get into <laughs> with your spouses and your roommates and your children about who's right and who's wrong. And truthfully, that brought me so much joy because uh, I realized that all of you are sometimes just as absurd and ridiculous as I am, and that, um, that made me feel really good. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so about this new series that we're going to kind of launch into tonight, um, since Christmas, when we launched, it just so happens that we have been chronologically working our way through the New Testament. So the part of the Bible that captures everything from Jesus's birth onward. And, and we didn't really set out with that plan, but every time Zach and I got together to talk about what we wanted our church to hear, we kept coming back to that momentum. And it just felt right and poignant that, that we would keep doing that, that we would move forward in that way as we were continuing um, to be challenged and study and learn just on our own. And so I'm not really sure how long or at what point uh, we will change that, but here's where we're at. Uh, the Jesus movement has exploded from Jerusalem out across the ancient world. And as these Jesus followers spread out, these churches begin to establish and form. And as is the case even now, as people come to believe in Jesus, they bring with them their religious backgrounds and their cultural heritage and some biases and habits and ideas about the way that world and life are supposed to work creating quite a theological mess that this web to, to sort out. Thus, the next chunk of the Bible is a collection of letters written to these young church plants, dealing with their questions and their problems around how all of this fits together for them now in light of Jesus. And so first up is Paul's letter to the church in Rome titled Romans. And if you've been tracking with us, then you'll remember that, that Paul has grown up a Pharisee and he'd become a bit of a religious terrorist with these plans and the means to wipe out and kill anyone associated with this Jesus movement. But his crusade was interrupted by Jesus himself. And he has this interaction and this moment that winds up changing the trajectory of his life. And then Paul is given this really specific and unique mission, which is to carry the word of Jesus, to take this message to the non-Jewish, right? The Gentile world. And so now it's about 57 AD. And interestingly, at the time that Paul is writing this, he has never been to Rome. And so unlike many of the other letters that he writes churches to that he himself helped plant or has visited, he won't make it to Rome until three years after he is writing this. And so it's likely that the church in Rome was planted by some Jewish believers who had been visiting Jerusalem for this Jewish holiday called Pentecost, and that they themselves witnessed the way the disciples inherited the Holy Spirit. They were there for it. They saw it themselves, or they had heard Peter preach, right, just days after this had happened. Or it was also likely that, that a married couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul had befriended, helped plant this church. 
because they were from Rome and they were true teammates. I really adore them because they were this picture that was so rare in this time of partnership. They were equals in ministry and they were a force. And so Paul is now writing to this group of Jewish believers and Gentile believers that have now all come together at this church with all of their different religious baggage and their lines of inclusion and exclusion and all of these patterns that they have developed, right, about how to worship for years. And Paul is writing to them what to believe, what to believe about Jesus, right? See, I find this fascinating that the church in Rome, they didn't have the New Testament, like you and I do, to go back to, to reference that reflects to us the character of Christ. And at this point, these biographies of Jesus, the four books detailing his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, they weren't being circulated yet in written form, but this was being passed on by word of mouth and by the stories of the people who were there themselves. And so Paul's letter is likely the first piece of Christian literature that these Roman believers had ever seen. And isn't that wild? I mean, it's wild to think about that. Maybe I just find it fascinating because I'm a bit of a word nerd and I like to like geek out on stuff like this. But I think it's powerful to consider that these words on a page about Jesus were the first of their kind that these Roman believers would ever see. So I could keep going about that, but let's move on about the contents of the letter itself. So to begin, it's important that that we, as we get into some of Paul's theology and his teaching over the next few weeks, that we're anchored or that we remember the purpose in him writing it and the perspective that he's coming from so that we don't go plucking chapters and verses out of this book that then serves our own perspective which is why we're only gonna get about 17 verses in tonight and they are gonna be the foundation from which everything else Paul will go on to write kind of rests on. So the entire book of Romans is going to deal with this idea of righteousness. Of righteousness. Now that word is generally not part of our everyday vernacular. And so you might ask, well, what does that even mean? Well, Paul defines it for us in verse 17 when he says, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And so righteousness, therefore, is, is being right in God's eyes. It's this being right and this being right with God or having good standing with God is a matter of faith, right? That this rightness, this good standing, it doesn't start or end with our performance or our behavior or our own competence and ability to do right or good things. And it's also not sustained or carried on or finished by those things either, But our right standing with God, it is only accomplished. It's only completed in faith. First, faithfulness of God to keep his promise. And then two, the faith that we hold in God. Not in how well we can keep all of his rules and regulations, but the faith we hold in who this God is. And then Paul quotes this Old Testament verse from Habakkuk to say that this faith this faith that, the faith that makes us right in God's eyes, it leads to life. 
It leads to life now and life after death. And so that is what righteousness is, but what Paul couldn't account for and what he couldn't possibly anticipate when he wrote this thousands of years ago was the way that culture would shift, dramatically changing the response one might have to this idea of righteousness. See, I think what makes Paul one of the greatest missionaries and evangelists to ever live is that he would uniquely and specifically address, right, the most pressing problem or question or need of his audience. And so Paul understood that culturally and religiously, both of these groups, both these Jewish people and the Gentile people cared very much, very much about what made them right with God. Right, this rightness, this good standing with him was of great value and of great priority and therefore maintaining it or chasing after it or protecting it, protecting one's own standing with God was woven into the very fabric of life and ritual touched every part of their day. Right, but in 2021, I'd expect a very different response right, to the value of righteousness. Does being right in God's sight, does that even matter to the 21st century world? Like, do we care? Do we care about righteousness? Because culturally speaking, right, we kind of live and breathe in this moral relativism. And without getting, you know, too far into the weeds on some of this, it's this belief that what is right and what is wrong can't ultimately or universally be determined. And so what is right is left up to each individual to decide based on whatever works for them. And nobody has the right to impose their moral compass or their truth on anybody else. And so in a you-do-you world, being right with God Well, that might not be a very compelling reason to have or to explore faith, right? Because who are you to tell me, right, that I'm a sinner in need of saving or that I'm in this need of righteousness in the first place? That just is your opinion, right? I think the world says I care much less about being right with God than I do about being right with myself. And then socially, socially, isn't righteousness kind of an undesirable trait, Right, being righteous is often synonymous with being an arrogant jerk. Right, I could think of another word that starts with A, but that would be less appropriate. Right, but I think you catch my drift. Right, people who who believe they know everything or that they have the right way and then like to tell everybody else how to live. I was gonna say are like the worst kind of people, and then my husband pointed out he's like, Lindsay, that's a little extreme. (laughs) Maybe not not the worst, but it's aggravating. Right, it's frustrating. And so who wants to be righteous when it means that you don't have any friends or nobody wants to be around you because you're arrogant? In our postmodern world, righteousness, it's just not very attractive. And I think it's fair to say that generally as a people in our culture, we don't place a lot of value on righteousness. But something we do, something we do care a great deal about in 2021 are our relationships, Right, our relationships and our authenticity in those, knowing that I can be exactly who I am and that the person in front of me is also being exactly who they are. And so for me, 
When any one of my important relationships with my friends or my family or my spouse is under stress or there's this tension or there's this distance, I don't handle that very well. Meaning I, I wear it on my sleeve. Like I'm just not myself. The, this unresolved conflict or tension, it winds up kind of bleeding out into all these other areas of my life. And I hate carrying around that feeling, right? That feeling that something just isn't right. Hey, we're not on the same page. You and I, we keep missing each other. Something just isn't right between us. And maybe you can relate to that feeling, right? Well, unrighteousness, this not being made right in God's sight, it has the same effect on our relationship with God. It gets in the way of our ability to relate to him, to connect to him. It creates this distance, right? It puts this strain on our relationship. And now I'm guessing, and this is just a guess, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that because you're here, because you chose to be at church on a Wednesday night when it's gorgeous on the first week of summer, that at some level you are invested in this relationship with God, or at the very least you're curious about what that could mean or look like. And that relationship, our being able to authentically and meaningfully engage with God and be close to him and relate to him, it is connected, right, to this thing that Paul is talking about, this righteousness. And so maybe for that reason, right, this is something we ought to pay attention to. Righteousness is in fact something that you and I should care about. And so Paul, he makes it very clear in the first 17 verses of this book, that righteousness, this being right, made right, having this peace with God, it is a direct result. It has everything to do with what he calls the good news, right, or the gospel, right? Looking back at that verse 17, right, when he says, this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. And so this good news, it's the means, Right, It is the how. It's the how we are made right before God. It's the how we're able to be in relationship with him. And now I also would imagine that for those of you who have been in church maybe a long time, you're very familiar with the phrase, good news. Right? I bet some of you could even, you could give me a response without having to bat an eye about what that is and what it means. And it might even be attached to a very distinct memory right, on the third night of summer camp with your youth group where you raised your hand and you said, I accept or I receive or believe this good news, right? And no shame, I've spent 10 years in youth ministry, like I get it. I know about the third night of camp, okay? And regardless, right, of what you think, right, you might know about the gospel or the good news, I wanna look together at how Paul uses that phrase, because I think it's going to be crucial to our understanding of our own relationship with God. And so the Greek word that Paul uses here for, for this gospel is euangelion, is euangelion. And it translates to literally mean a good message or good news. And it's used a handful of ways throughout the New Testament. But this word, it wasn't necessarily reserved for talking about Jesus or even talking about religion. And so when we hear the word gospel now, it almost always implies that we're talking about faith, 
right? But the historical context when these first verses were written, right, this first century audience would not have jumped to the same conclusions you and I might or make the same assumptions. This was a very common general word used to describe all kinds of news, Right? And it was used to proclaim that something had happened or was happening. Usually, it was used to proclaim or to set up this expectation of a new king or that there was a new monarch in town. And so it's clear that Paul's use of this Greek word means that the gospel right, is definitely news, right? And news about Jesus. But what about Jesus exactly? Right, well, Paul kind of spells it out for us right, in the first few verses of this first book of Romans. So this is Romans 1.1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I want to now spend a little bit of time breaking down Paul's expression of the good news here in Romans and highlighting some of these dimensions Right, some of these aspects of it that I think we often tend to either minimize or we just kind of miss altogether and skip over. And then I, I want to see if that matches up with or if it lines up with what, whatever definition or idea you brought in here about what the gospel or the good news really is. And so the first thing I want to point out that Paul points out is one that the good news comes with a backstory. Right, this good news comes with, with a backstory. Paul points out the way that this news, it is connected to a very long history, meaning Jesus's life didn't happen in a vacuum, right? void of family lineage and history and story. And Paul reminds us of all of these promises and prophecies that have been looking forward to when God would finally send someone to rescue the world when he would finally redeem creation and restore what was broken. And so to understand the significance of Jesus is to understand that his life is connected to the original story of God and his people, right? That Jesus, his life is situated within this larger story of Israel, right? That is why Paul mentions, right? He was born into King David's family line, Right? And then this story of Israel, that takes us way back right, to the original story of creation, right, of God and this dream, this vision that he had for his people and for humanity. Right? And so if, if we strip the good news of this backstory, of this context and this history, then it becomes difficult to understand why this news about Jesus right, would be good. Why would that be good at all? if we don't understand why people have been waiting so long to hear this news. So the good news comes with a backstory. Two is that the good news hinges, right? It hinges on the resurrection, right? So Paul, in these first few verses, he places special emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus, 
right? And being raised from the dead, it is what distinguished and it proved and it provided the evidence that Jesus really is who he says he is all along, that he really is, right, the son of God. He is the one that these Old Testament prophets and these prophecies have been pointing towards. And so Jesus being brought back to life, it is the major turning point in this story, right? In the resurrection, it changes everything, Everything, because the reality is, right, the Romans, they crucified thousands of people. Jesus was not special in that way. He was not the only man, right, to hang on a cross. But his death, conquering sin and evil and darkness, right, and him showing that he has power over it, defeating it in his resurrection, that had never happened before. And it changes everything. It makes this relationship that you and I get to have with God possible. It creates this new reality. Right, the good news hinges on the resurrection. And three, the good news, it reveals Jesus's lordship, right, his lordship. So there is a lot There is a lot to say about Jesus, about his life, about his ministry, about his death and his resurrection. And we see that he is called many, many different things, right? Throughout scripture, he's called teacher and master and friend. He's called Messiah and savior, right? And these are all true and accurate in their own right and they're important. But Paul in Romans draws our attention here to his lordship, right, that he, Jesus, is reigning and ruling, right, and the resurrection, it's this in-breaking, it's the establishment of kingdom come, right, of heaven here on earth. So Paul recognized that not only was Jesus his savior, right, saving him and forgiving him, but he was also Lord, right, he is king, and he's Lord of all, not just Lord of the Jews, right, and this good news, about Jesus, it requires that we tell it, right? It demands to be shared and spoken and and told, right? Paul continues on. He writes, through Christ, God has given us the privilege, the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory, glory to his name, right? But I think the question is then have we communicated that good news with all of those dimensions and depth and the richness that Paul uses when when he describes it, when he defines it? Or have we confined this good news and the gospel to just a few things, just our forgiveness, just our salvation, which is important. And yes, it includes that. But might there be more? Might there be more? And maybe have we missed, have we missed telling the good news in a way that brings to life this relationship that God so deeply desires to have with his people, right? That he would send Jesus, right? As our replacement, as this perfect sacrifice. So now when God looks at us, he doesn't see our unrighteousness, but he sees Jesus and his perfection, right? And his wholeness. This is the heart of Paul's letter. He writes with this good news to tell, this good news that this promise about Jesus, it has finally come true. 
And this news about his life and his death and his resurrection, it has changed what we thought was possible. And this sacrifice, it makes us right with God. It gives us this good standing, this righteousness, making connection, relationship, closeness, authenticity with God possible for you and for me. And so Paul's message, it's not about rules. It's not about religion. Paul isn't suggesting some advice or a system for for getting into heaven. He's not proposing more religious red tape and some hoops you got to jump through to make sure you get there. He's not even talking philosophy or, or morality, but he is sharing news. That simply, he is talking about news that either happened or it didn't. Right, news that Jesus is this turning point in the story and it changes. It changes the horizon of what is possible. Possible for life now and for life after death. And so as we move into the next few weeks and months and, and as we get confronted maybe by some of the things that, that Paul wrote that um, confuse us or make us angry or that we're just not sure what to do with, right, we can return We can return to this foundation, right? Knowing that righteousness, it's not about rules and religion and regulations. It is about relationship. That is God's desire, his heart, right? And us being right with him. It's relationship. So I wanna close tonight by reading Romans 1 again, just, just over us and kind of to us and for us. So Kindred, would you stand? And would you just close your eyes and just kind of take this in. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege, the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you, you are included amongst those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And I am writing to all of you, all of you who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace.